This is Only a Game. I'm Karen Given. We've gotten a lot of suggestions on how to fill these last few shows. It's safe to say we won't have time to air them all. But I promise we will play the story about Charles Barkley and the cat litter scientist one last time. Just not today. We're going to start today's show with a story requested by Karen Castle-McCluskey via Facebook. This story first aired just seven months ago, but so much has changed since then. We began with speculation over the U.S. men's basketball team roster for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Um, we're talking about Steph, James Harden, uh, yes. right? Anthony, Anthony Davis. Davis. Yes. Here's Only a Game's Martin Kessler. One thing's for sure. Every player on Team USA will be employed by a professional basketball team. But back in 1936, the first year that the Olympics featured basketball, the players representing Team USA were amateurs who played for company teams. In fact, half of that 1936 U.S. Olympic basketball team worked at an oil refinery about 50 miles from Wichita, Kansas. The other half came from Universal Pictures. Yes, the same Universal Pictures that brought us such timeless classics as E.T., Back to the Future, and all nine Fast and Furious films also gave Team USA half its basketball roster for the 1936 games. And how this happened, how a bunch of guys who worked as stagehands and promoters for a movie studio ended up representing the U.S. at the Nazi games in Berlin, starts with a Jewish immigrant from Germany a guy who played a leading role in creating Hollywood as we know it today. Carl Lemley was just 17 in 1884 when he left Germany for the United States. He settled in the Midwest. And had a variety of jobs. That's author Andrew Marinus. But on one trip to Chicago, he saw a long line of people standing outside of a Nickelodeon theater. And he said that there might be some money to be made in this fledgling film business. He started his own Nickelodeon in Chicago and then pretty quickly realized that the real money was to be made in actually creating and distributing the movies. He saw a truck driving down the street with the brand of Universal Pipe Fitters. And that's where this name of Universal came from. August of 1912, that's when Universal started leasing land out here in Southern California. That's Jeff Pirtle, director of archives and collections for NBC Universal. Jeff Pirtle says that in those early days, Carl Lemley's Universal Pictures set itself apart from other studios with its low budget westerns and comedies that targeted rural markets. And the studio turned a 230 acre plot of land in the San Fernando Valley into Universal City. This fantasy land where people could go walk down a New York street or walk down a Western street. I've got this great photograph from 1923. And you can see the lower half of the Notre Dame Cathedral that's on the back lot. You can also see a set of Monte Carlo. Author Andrew Marinus says Carl Lemley brought family members from Germany to live and work on the studio. This elaborate town where 300-something people lived. Native Americans lived there, and they were extras in the Western movies that the studio was making at the time. He was the first person to really sort of open up the studio to tourists. So you would have people arriving on bus and sitting in bleachers watching these movies being made. And they were encouraged to cheer the heroes of the films and to boo the villains because this was all in the silent era. So how does a basketball team enter the picture? (laughs) So... 
in the early 1930s, of course, some of the great films that were being produced at Universal were our classic monster films. Dracula was 1931. Frankenstein came out later that year. The Mummy was 1932. The Invisible Man, 1933. So at that time, Universal had a really tight-knit group of employees. And there was formed the Universal City Club, which was an employee group that had bowling leagues, softball leagues. They would have big dinners and dances. And they also had a basketball league. Now, an important thing to know about this era, professional basketball wasn't yet a big thing. If you had talent and wanted to keep playing after college, your best options were to play for your local YMCA or your company team. And Universal Pictures hired a number of former UCLA players to work as grips, best boys, and electricians on sets, and to play basketball. The basketball team was an important way that the studio marketed their films. They would travel from town to town, mostly on the, on the West Coast. They carried this banner with them everywhere they went that had the names of famous uh, movie cowboys on it or famous producers. If people had the money to afford to go see a basketball game, they might have the money to afford to go see a movie as well. So really, it was a, it was a pretty brilliant marketing strategy by the studio. The team was organized by a guy named Jack Pierce, who was the head makeup artist at Universal Pictures. He created the iconic looks for characters like Frankenstein and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. So Pierce put the team's six foot seven center, Frank Lubin, through an unconventional pregame routine. They would uh, dress him up as Frankenstein and paint him green. <laughs> and he would entertain the crowds prior to the basketball games to promote Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. And then as the game started, he would scurry off to the locker room. They would scrape off the green paint and put him in his basketball uniform. Sometimes he'd come back on the court with a little bit of green still on him uh, and come out and, and play center. The Universal team competed in national tournaments. And they played sort of an old school brand of basketball, slow. <laughs> the modern eye would consider their, their brand of basketball boring. Um, they, they dubbed themselves the Sure Passers. And th thought that was a cool name, <laughs> you know? It's kind of ironic that the team sponsored by an entertainment company <laughs> would be like the one yeah. that's... Although I guess you could say winning is the best entertainment if you're an athlete. That's so true. they won a lot of basketball games. And at the same time that the Universal Pictures team was showing its skill on the court, the U.S. Olympic Committee was about to determine who'd go to the 1936 Games in Berlin for the inaugural basketball competition. There was a qualifying tournament played around the country, which culminated with the Elite Eight, if you will, at Madison Square Garden. And it was decided that whichever two teams in that tournament advanced to the championship game would be combined to become the U.S. Olympic team. The tournament featured college teams, YMCA teams, company-sponsored teams. But not all of the country's best teams participated. For one, black players weren't allowed to compete. And Long Island University, the top college team at the time, riding a 40-plus game winning streak, had five Jewish players. They voted to boycott the qualifying tournament. In fact, author Andrew Marinus says that Carl Lemley, that's the Universal Pictures founder, the Jewish immigrant from Germany, stopped supporting the company basketball team ahead of the U.S. qualifying tournament in protest of Hitler. But just as the Universals were about to play in New York, Lemley was also losing control of his studio. 
Remember how in those early days, Universal Pictures made its mark with low-budget westerns and comedies? Well, in 1929, seven years before the Olympic qualifying tournament, Carl Lemley gave his son a pretty wild 21st birthday present. He made Carl Lemley Jr. the head of production. He really elevated the quality of productions that Universal was making. That's Jeff Pertle, director of archives and collections at NBC Universal again. Carl Lemley Jr.'s really first big production was All Quiet on the Western Front. But you're just a man like me, and I killed you. Forgive me, comrade. Which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1930. Lemley Jr. was also responsible for Dracula and Frankenstein and the other famous monster movies. But in 1936, one of the big productions that Carl Lemley Jr. greenlit for production was Showboat. And... To finance that production, the studio had to get a big loan and put the studio up for collateral. Showboat got made. I don't know as I'd like you to go falling in love with some man no one ever heard of. Suppose he but the Lemleys weren't able to pay back the loan. Carl Lemley would have to sell his studio. Meanwhile, the qualifying tournament at Madison Square Garden was getting underway. The Universal Pictures basketball team beat the University of Arkansas, then the Wilmerding, Pennsylvania YMCA. In the championship game, they met the Globe Refiners from McPherson, Kansas. That's really Kansas, not Missouri. Both teams had already earned the right to represent the U.S. at the Olympics. But for good measure, the Universals upset the oil men by a single point to become national champions. No basketball team could stop the Universals from making it to the Berlin Games. But the situation back in Hollywood could. The April 11, 1936 edition of the magazine Universal Weekly features a photo of the basketball team fresh off its victory at Madison Square Garden, just above a headline that reads, Charles R. Rogers takes charge of production at Universal City. Lemley had lost his studio. The new administration really wasn't too keen on sending a group of employees over to Nazi Germany. So the studio pretty much said, okay, you guys are on your own. If they wanted to go to Germany, the players would have to pay their own way. Not only that, they'd likely lose their jobs at the studio. For the Universal players, it was an easy choice. The only question was, how could they raise the money? A local sports writer had an idea for a fundraiser, an exhibition between the Universals and a team of college all-stars in L.A. It didn't go well. Here's author Andrew Marinus again. First of all, Hardly anybody showed up for the game. I think they only made 500 bucks. And then the college all-stars beat the Universals. And so the joke was that the wrong team was going to Berlin. Things were not looking good. But just before it was too late, some other Hollywood big shots stepped up. They funded the team. James Whale, director of Frankenstein as well as Showboat, was one benefactor. Another was Walter Lance, who was an animator who created Woody Woodpecker. So we've got Frankenstein and Woody Woodpecker to thank for, in part, for the first U.S. Olympic basketball team. The Universal players boarded a train for New York, just in time to catch the SS Manhattan bound for Germany. They really weren't able to practice much basketball. Initially, they were supposed to practice on deck, and they lost several basketballs into the Atlantic Ocean. So there was a lot of partying, drinking, card playing going on on this boat. It sounds like it was just a pleasure cruise. Luckily, the competition in Germany wasn't particularly challenging. In fact, the U.S.'s first opponent, Spain, forfeited after the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. Marinus says Estonia was supposed to be Europe's best team, but the Americans topped them by 24 points. 
The plan had been for the Universals and the Globe Refiners to remain mostly separate squads and alternate playing on behalf of Team USA. Universal Pictures was supposed to play first and also last in the gold medal game. But because of the Spanish Civil War and the cancellation of that first game, the order got thrown off and the players from the Globe Refiners, not Universal, got to represent the U.S. against Canada for the first Olympic basketball gold medal which I'm going to bet is not a sentence you expected to hear today. Anyway, the U.S. slash Globe Refiners beat Canada 19-8. to The Globe Refiners received their gold medals at a ceremony. The Universal Pictures players got their medals in the mail back in L.A. Not exactly a cinematic ending. Well, so what happens to the um, Universal Pictures team after the Olympics? It's disbanded, as was the Refiners team from Kansas. Crazy to think about. This is is the best team in the world. They win the gold medal, and that's the last time they ever play. Center Frank Lubin, that's the guy who dressed up as Frankenstein before games, went on to work as a stagehand and play for the team at 20th Century Fox. Universal Pictures never formed another competitive basketball team. Jeff Pertle also says there was a silver lining to founder Carl Lemley's loss of the studio. Carl Lemley dedicated the last three years of his life to writing affidavits for German Jews to get out of Nazi Germany and come to America. And he wrote over 300 affidavits. His star is right at the heart of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and that is well-deserved. That story came from Only a Game's Martin Kessler. It first aired in February, back when we still thought the 2020 Tokyo Olympics would happen on schedule. Andrew Marinus's book is Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. You're listening to the best of Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Last summer, producer Matthew Stock spoke with Jill Heinerth, a professional cave diving explorer and underwater filmmaker. Jill has done work for PBS, National Geographic, and the BBC, and she's one of the most accomplished cave divers on the planet. Back in 2001, accompanied by expert diver Paul Heinerth and underwater cinematographer Wes Skiles, Jill captained an exhibition to the B-15 iceberg in Antarctica. Requested by too many people to name, here's Jill's story again in her own words. People look into caves and they see nothing but darkness, terror, fear, claustrophobia. I look into a cave, and I want to know what's around the next corner. My partner and I wanted to pitch a project to go to Antarctica. We had been watching satellite photos of this great crack slowly opening up in the Ross Ice Shelf. And as we were getting close to making our pitch, 
the largest moving object on our planet broke away from Antarctica. It was an iceberg the size of Jamaica. So we decided that we were going to go to Antarctica and be the first people to ever cave dive inside an iceberg. When we pitched our project to National Geographic, they said, wow, there's caves inside of icebergs? And we said, hell yeah, there's caves inside of icebergs. But the truth was, we didn't know. We figured that if this great crack had broken this piece off the ice sheet, then there had to be other cracks. It was simply a hypothesis. The moment I saw this white pinnacle of ice for the first time standing like a mountain on the ocean, my heart was racing. I was, it was beautiful. It was sculptural. And I also had a feeling of reverence. This ice is endangered. And I had the sense that I was looking at something that would never be the same again. And so I felt very privileged. The first dive... I was actually a little nervous. I wasn't nervous for myself as much as I was for Wes and for Paul because this was their first ice dive. This was the coldest dive either of them had ever been on. We picked this beautiful iceberg that we called Patience Camp. Then we pulled our Zodiac boat into this little bay. Wes rolled off the boat. The water started pouring into his suit. And he should have gotten out of the water immediately. He decided he wanted to shoot one minute of footage so he could see what this new camera would produce. One minute is dangerous. I mean, you very, very quickly lose the ability to, you know, manipulate your hands or operate or even think straight. By the time he'd shot a minute of footage, he was almost incapacitated. He's wearing basically a bag full of water, and we've got to get him into the boat. And it was scary. We had the first mate tugging on him and Paul and I trying to push him. And then when we rushed him back to the Braveheart, we had to strip him down and get him into a bunk with sleeping bags to warm up because he had already been in the water too long. We were all very experienced cave explorers. I was familiar with all of the issues that could happen to our gear because of the ultra-cold water, the additional risks from ice diving. But what we didn't understand, really, was the environment we were going to put ourselves into in these iceberg caves. When we decided to do our first dive inside an iceberg. It was really exciting, and I was, you know, a bit nervous. Wes and the first mate stayed in the boat, and Paul and I rolled off into slushy, chunky water. When you first jump into the water, you get an immediate bang, assault, like an ice cream headache from the water hitting your face. And you take a few very quick, deep breaths in order to knock back the cold. And dropping your face in the water, the first thing you see is this mixing slurry of slush and melting fresh water mixed with the salt water. And it's almost impossible to focus. 
And then you have to sort of push that aside and the little chunks of ice and then slowly descend down, dropping into this unknown. So there was this deep vertical fissure crack. And Paul and I descended down this crevice. And we went down and down and down into the darkness until we suddenly came upon the seafloor. And it was about 130 feet deep, deeper than we originally thought we might want to dive in Antarctica. But there at the bottom, as I turned to my right, was a passage. I realized we had found it, that we were in this environment that nobody had seen before. The ice around us was blue and white and clear, like sometimes like a robin's egg, sometimes like deep turquoise. But the seafloor was red and orange and yellow, every warm color, and the contrast was stunning. And it was covered with a shag carpet of filter-feeding organisms. So there were sponges and little Christmas tree-shaped worms and things that looked like miniature palm trees, like sort of wafting in the current. And then, all of a sudden, there were these isopods. They were kind of like little something between a spider and a lobster about the size of my hand and they started raining down from cracks over my head and crawling along the floor and hitting my camera and landing on my shoulder it was it was like horror story material <laughs> the seafloor has its own unique sound kind of reminds me of as a kid when you'd eat that pop rocks candy and you just hear the you know, clicking almost. And as we swam deeper and deeper into the berg, there were also like strange cracks and pops and groans from the ice. It was moving, it was shifting, it was changing. And I remember at one point a very deep groaning vibration sounded and I felt it all the way through to my toes. It was it was that loud. And we kind of looked at each other and looked at our equipment and everything seemed fine. But when we finally turned around on that dive and worked our way back slowly to the entrance, there were big, giant pieces of ice where we had entered this cave. And the doorway we swam into was gone. People often say, you must be fearless. And I am not fearless. I try to do everything to prepare for risk, and I work through my head how I'm going to solve that. But you can't always predict what's going to go wrong when you're doing something that's never been done before. And so coming back to the doorway of a cave and finding that suddenly closed is like, oh my god. Every breath is currency, and I only have so many of those in my equipment. So every breath marches me either ever closer to success or ever closer to death. So as we approach these giant blocks of ice, we search for a way around and through them and and slowly, bit by bit, found a way out. Now, we had to make a stop. We had to hang in the water about 20 feet deep before we could rise back to the surface. And that's part of just readjusting your body to the surface pressure. And when I looked up from that 20-foot stop, I saw 
Wes and Matt, the first mate, standing and like high-fiving, celebrating, obviously. They told us about what it was like when that iceberg calved and that big chunk of ice sloughed off and closed the doorway and sent this great wave almost capsizing them in the Zodiac. It, it was terrifying for them. And the whole time they were waiting and waiting and waiting and not knowing if we were alive or dead. You know, they knew that there was no way to mount a rescue and all they could do was wait. By the next day, I thought, okay, I know more than I did yesterday. We're going to give it another try. It's still guesswork, um, and it's still, you know, a risk. But I guess in that moment, I felt it was a risk worth taking. The entrance looked stable, and everything looked fine. We dropped quickly down to the bottom and went in and started photographing some of the life. And, and slowly, I noticed that the current was picking up. It was getting a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger. And all of a sudden, rapidly, it was racing. And I remember sort of digging my hand into the seafloor to stop myself from rushing forward. It felt like dough, you know? And my whole body kind of cartwheeled around my hand. As we turned back towards the exit, we couldn't kick hard enough to move forward. And we realized the current had us. And we looked at each other and went, oh boy, you know, we're being sucked inside the iceberg. But we could see blue light in the distance. We knew there was another exit. And in a very quick decision, Paul and I decided to go with the flow and go towards the other doorway. But when you're inside an iceberg, you don't have a sense of how far that blue light of the doorway is from you. And as we started to rush with the current towards that light, we kept drifting and drifting and drifting, and it didn't seem like it was getting much bigger. And we went and we went and we went until we finally reached this doorway. And I thought, okay, we're out. And when my head broke the surface, there was ice all around me and it was higher than I could see over and I couldn't see the boat and my heart just hit my stomach I felt like a gnat on the back of the planet boy it's time gets so compressed and takes on a strange nature when when you're scared you know when you think you think there's a possibility you might die and everything's out of your control. So I'm not sure if it was 15 minutes or half an hour, but I was getting cold. I was shaking when suddenly I heard something. And what had happened is the current had knocked the boat off its anchorage just as it had flushed us through the iceberg. And they were pulling up the anchor to reset it. And in the process of that chain being yanked up onto the boat, the boat moved, and I saw a small glimpse of the stern swing around the edge of the vertical side of the iceberg. And I went, oh, there they are. And I heard in the distance, I heard Wes's voice, the sweetest sound I've ever heard, say, is that Jill? And he spotted us on the horizon and then was slowly able to move the Braveheart towards us and get us out of the water. Our final dive inside Ice Island, Wes decided he was going to join us 
he decided that the images that we'd brought back were so compelling that he wanted to shoot it with the best camera that we had. We dropped down to the seafloor and moved our way inside. And very quickly, that current picked up again. And so I turned to Wes and Paul and I put my thumb up in the signal that indicates that it's time to turn around and go. But as we wheeled around, we realized we might not be able to get out. And we pulled and pulled and dived our hands into the seafloor. And we weren't making our way forward. I mean, my biceps, my triceps, my forearms were shaking, pulling with every bit of energy I had to get back towards that crevasse. We just couldn't make our way forward. I was leaning, Paul was behind me, and Wes was losing ground. And he yelled out, help me with the camera. And I thought... F the camera. (laughs) We might die. I was angry. And Paul dropped back to help Wes. And I was mad at him, too, because I thought, come on, you guys, you can't do this. Like, And they together managed to work the camera towards the entrance. But even at the entrance, I didn't know how we were going to get up the crevasse because this water was pouring down the crevasse. And it was so strong, it was pressing us back down every time I tried to move up. So I looked around, I thought, what are we going to do? How are we going to climb these walls? It's just ice, it's slippery. I, I touch the wall and it just slides down. And then I remembered these little ice fish that we'd been studying that were about the size of my thumb and they were living in these these burrows inside the ice. And I thought, climbing holds. I could jam a finger into that hole and maybe I can have enough grip that I can pull my way up and get back towards the surface that was still 130 feet over our heads. And I inched my way up hole by hole and Wes and Paul got there too and started to follow along until we could get up out of the crevasse and out of the stream of current. I remember getting back to the boat after the dive, and I was feeling quite solemn. And the science officer reached down. He, you know, we were already two hours overdue, so he was relieved to see us. And I remember looking up and saying, the cave tried to keep us today. You know, Mother Nature had given us a last warning. Like good creative people, it's never enough. You always want more. (laughs) We decided we wanted to do one more dive. So we prepped our equipment. We went to have a meal and sit down and plan one more dive. A dive that we would do at the moment when the current slackened. And as we were having a meal, we heard screams on deck. And we dropped everything and ran up the companionway, up onto the deck. And there was our iceberg, the cave that we had just been inside of, breaking into pieces, heaving up in the sea and sending these giant waves towards our boat. The whole like square mile of ice we'd just been inside of was breaking apart and dissolving into the sea. I was just standing there, you know, gobsmacked on the ship's rail. I realized that if we had been in the water, we'd be dead. 
when we came home and tried to tell our story, most people just thought we were insane. <laughs> How could you do that? How could you go in over and over and over again? And boy, you were lucky. You know, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know? um, but for me, it was so worth it to have that experience to document a place that maybe no one will ever see again. We don't know whether the B-15 iceberg was truly just simply evidence of climate change or whether it was part of the evolving changes in the Antarctic ice sheet. It's, it's impossible to know. But I do know that it was important. It was important for us to go and document that environment and everything living around it. And I'm glad to have had that experience and glad to even have had those brushes with death that made me a better, safer diver in the future. Jill Heinerth's story was produced by Matthew Stock. It first aired in September of last year. Jill's book is called Into the Planet. second semester of his sophomore year in college, Zeke Cook was sent home to recover from a serious mental health issue. He wanted to do everything he could to get better. Simply taking a few antidepressants and not making wholesale lifestyle changes, that would not be enough for me to be healthy at school. And so exercise was the first step for me. And then beyond that, it was nutrition and then I guess donkeys. That's coming up. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Only a Game NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. We have time today to fulfill one more listener request. And lucky for me, it's one of my favorites. The story begins with Zeke Cook. It was the second semester of his sophomore year at Penn State, and Zeke was home from school, not by choice. I decided that it would probably be in my best interest to try to, you know, add exercise to my life. So I started running, and I was reading Born to Run for some form of inspiration. Born to Run is Christopher McDougall's 2009 best-selling book that fueled the barefoot running craze. And Chris McDougall just so happens to be Zeke's neighbor and old family friend. Zeke's mom, Andrea, left a message explaining that Zeke was spending a semester away from school. And would Chris be willing to take him for a run? And you have to understand what the Cook family's like. They don't rattle. So to get a phone call and hear that Zeke is home from college, like suddenly like alarm bells are going off. Like this does not happen to the Cook family. Chris is a big believer in movement as medicine. So he figured whatever trouble Zeke was in, running would probably help. But before talking to Zeke, he needed to get Andrea on the phone for some intel. 
So I picked up the phone call. I thought I was calling her cell phone number, and I actually got the home number. Zeke answered the phone. I was like, hey, man, I was interested in going for a run. I'm home from school. And, and Chris kind of said, yeah, we should do a run tomorrow. Are you available tomorrow? And he's like, yeah. But, and then he's like, I'll tell you tomorrow. So you invite him for a run, but you don't tell him that there's going to be a donkey involved? Would you tell him? <laughs> no way. The donkey's name is Sherman. What advice did you give him when you handed him Sherman's lead? <laughs> Stay out of the line of fire, buddy. No, I think I downplayed it. I said, uh, let's just go out and have some fun. Watch those back hoofs. That's their defense mechanism is to kick. And let's just see what happens. Chris still didn't know what was going on with Zeke. But the run that day wasn't only about taking care of Zeke. It was also about taking care of Sherman. Sherman came to live with Chris and his family in the fall of 2015. It was fully my daughter Sophie's fault. She was nine years old, and I made the crucial mistake of asking her what she wanted for her birthday. And the answer was a donkey. The McDougals live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Amish country. And at just that moment, another neighbor was trying to rescue a donkey from a hoarder. We first saw him locked in his stall in the darkness. So we knew he was in bad shape but we didn't realize how bad it was until the next day when our neighbor was able to pry this donkey away from the hoarder, bring it to our home, and we saw it in daylight for the first time. The donkey's hooves were so overgrown and deformed, he couldn't walk. And if donkeys can't walk, they can't survive. They need to move in order to digest their food and pass it through their digestive tract. Chris called Tanya, a local vet assistant, and her husband Scott, an amateur farrier. That's someone who takes care of an animal's hooves. And I'm in a state of panic. Like, I have my daughter's 10th birthday gift, which is about to die an excruciating death in front of her eyes. Can you help? And their answer is, don't worry about it. Donkeys are tough. We've seen it all. No problem. They come over the next day. They take a look at this donkey and they go, We've never seen this before. Scott used a hacksaw to cut through the donkey's hooves and then clipped and filed them into shape. When it was all over, the donkey should have walked away, but he didn't. He was standing there, glassy-eyed, immobile, shell-shocked. And Scott's looking at him saying, you know, it, it may be too late. If he doesn't move, he's going to die. It might be better to put him down right now. But Scott's wife, Tanya, wasn't ready to give up. Tanya blazed in. She was just like a white ball of avenging thunder. She was so furious at what this hoarder had done. Tanya injected the donkey. By this point, Chris's daughter had named him Sherman with antibiotics and painkillers and started shearing off the fur that had become matted with filth. As she worked, she was already looking beyond the current problem to the next one. She just kind of turned to me with those kind of clippers in my face and said, now look, you're not just going to drop him out of the field. He's feeling despair. He's been abandoned. you got to give him a job. He's got to have a reason to open his eyes and look forward to something. The only thing I could think of is, like, I'm not like a prospector. Like, what? I don't have a job for a donkey. But 10 years earlier, I had been to Colorado to cover a story for the World Championship Pack Burrow Race. Yep. The World Championship Pack Burrow Race. It's held every July in Fair Play, Colorado. Participants run alongside donkeys up and over a mountain. The short course is 15 miles. I'm scanning desperately. Job, job, job. Oh, hey, Pack Burrow Race. Chris was sure Tanya would think this was a terrible idea. She kind of looked at me. She's like, okay, all right, I see this. But it's going to be step one is can this creature even put a foot on a hard surface? 
By the next morning, Sherman had made a friend, a goat named Lawrence. Wherever Lawrence went, Sherman followed. He was finally moving. But there was still the question of whether Sherman would willingly step on a hard surface. Donkeys are naturally distrustful, and Sherman had never seen anything outside the hoarder's small, dark stall. So when Tanya tried to lead Sherman out to the road, he stopped just short of the asphalt. Tanya spent the next 40 minutes locked in a battle of wills until Sherman finally set one hoof on the road. She turns to me and she goes, see that? That's the power of a second chance. And I'm like, you're right. We're giving him a second chance. And she's like, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about you. Why do you think he would ever trust a human again? Humans have made his life nothing but miserable. He's giving you a second chance, buddy, and you better live up to it. Chris and Tanya had less than a year to get Sherman in shape for the World Championship Packborough race. But they soon realized that he wouldn't go anywhere without a friend. So Tanya brought over her big riding donkey, Flower. Tanya would ride Flower. Chris would follow behind, running with Sherman. Flower was fast, but she was afraid of everything. Cows, puddles, the color yellow. So we had to triple down and bring in a third donkey, And then my poor wife, Mika, who was not down with any of this plan, suddenly gets recruited to be the third donkey runner. By this time, it was Thanksgiving, and Tanya was facing trouble at home. She could no longer join Chris and Mika for their daily runs. And without a third handler, the donkey trio was stalled. So when Zeke Cook's mom called to see if Chris would be willing to take her son for a run... Chris thought he might have found a solution to his problem. But he still didn't know why Zeke was home. And he knew handling Sherman wouldn't be easy. We're early in the process where, you know, if we could go a quarter mile, that was huge. And it's a quarter mile of, like, him twisting and turning. And it's this endless, like, mind game. That's what I was throwing this poor kid into. So when did you finally learn what Zeke was up against? It was Zeke who told me. And, uh... Chris pushes back from the microphone and looks away. And for the next 30 seconds, he doesn't say anything. Longest pause in radio history. All right. Yeah, I don't like thinking about it. Yeah. So he's the one who told me, and he was very matter-of-fact about it. Zeke is still matter-of-fact about it. I had actually been kind of going through a seriously depressive episode in my life where I had essentially attempted to commit suicide. Zeke had been hospitalized. He was allowed to return home under the condition that he attend regular therapy sessions and work with doctors to find the right mix of medications. When Zeke's mom asked Chris for help, she hadn't breathed easy in weeks. Depression, man, I just hate that word because it's such a misconception of what this thing is. It's not being depressed. It is being stricken by a life-threatening illness. And if it can hit that kid, man, you know, this kid's got everything going for him. So if it's attacking his brain, it can get anybody. Zeke wanted to get back to his friends and to his studies at Penn State, but he knew he wouldn't be able to until he was no longer a danger to himself. It became pretty apparent to me that Simply taking a few antidepressants and not making wholesale lifestyle changes, that would not be enough for me to be healthy at school. And so for me, it was more about kind of trying to rebalance some of my wiring. So 
exercise was the first step for me. And then beyond that, it was nutrition and then, I guess, donkeys. Because as it turns out, by handing Zeke Sherman's lead that day, Chris had tapped into something ancient and often overlooked, the connection between humans and animals. I mean, there's a reason why, like right now, you pet a cat and it purrs and you feel really good. It's not because it's cute. It's because ancestrally, if you had a wild feline and that creature with far better auditory sense and night vision and, and sense of smell realize that there's no danger in the perimeter, that gives you an indication like you can relax now. You bring a dog into a cancer ward and the requirement for pain medication cuts in half. Anxiety, stress levels drop in half. Chris didn't plan to partner Zeke, the fastest runner and least experienced donkey handler, with the slowest and hardest to handle donkey. But he says Zeke and Sherman chose each other right from that first run. We stopped it for a quarter mile, assessing how's everyone doing, and Sherman's just leaning his head against Zeke's leg. They were just, they were just brothers at that moment. Zeke, the kid fighting depression, and Sherman, the donkey with abandonment issues, soon started to realize that they could help each other heal. I think that with depression, it's a malaise that kind of makes it very difficult for you to look beyond the immediate problems. It's almost like you're in a perpetual state of panic. You, you feel kind of afraid all the time. You feel trapped, I guess. And so when you're dealing with an animal that, that has needs that they can't articulate, it gets you outside of your own brain. Soon, Zeke was showing up every day to get outside of his own brain with Sherman. I remember one morning, he was like cold and wet, and like, oh, you know what? Let's just call this bag it today. And we look up, and there's Zeke pulling the drive like a half an hour early. Dude, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I realized early on that you'd be relying on me for consistency and punctuality. <laughs> And I think, you know, that was it, man. He felt that his job was to be like kind of team captain here. And he was getting the exercise, the animal contact, and the sense of need. Like, we needed him. It was kind of the rock around which I kind of rebuilt my life. And as Zeke started to feel better, so did Sherman. I just had this such a vivid memory of, of, of seeing Sherman, ears in the air, mane flopping back and forth, whole body just sort of jiggling along, Different animal entirely from the animal we brought. The animal we brought was dead-eyed, glassy-eyed, slumped over, head down, and suddenly like frisking along like a little like show pony in a parade. And Zeke always in contact, like his hip, like brushing against Sherman's side. Four years after coming to live with the McDougals, Sherman is happy and healthy. He still lives at the McDougals' farm, but now his running buddies Flower and Matilda live there too. Zeke visits Sherman whenever he's home. He, I would say, is more sociable. He's much, I'd say, more inherently trusting of people. I think I, I maybe gave Sherman some sense of peace. And what did Sherman do for you? I'd say Sherman is a big part of the reason why I was actually able to go back to school and graduate. You know, when I when I got back to school, it was like I trained with a donkey. I can I can do this. I can do anything. Christopher McDougall's book, Running with Sherman, chronicles the three-runner, three-donkey team's run at the 2016 World Championship Packboro race. But that's a story for another day.
That story first aired in November of last year. I'm happy to report that Zeke Cook and Sherman the Donkey are both happy and healthy. Zeke just began his Ph.D. program at Berkeley after having also been accepted at Yale, Cornell, and Boulder. Sherman, along with fellow donkeys Matilda and Flower, has moved to a 130-acre farm, where, if all goes according to plan after COVID, they will be given new jobs, working at an animal therapy center for people struggling with mental health issues. Only a Game was produced this week by technical director Marquise Neal, who tweets at one Quizzington and me. You can follow the former Only a Game staff on Twitter. Jonathan Chang is at Jonathan Y. Chang. Martin Kessler is at Martin Kessler 91. And Gary Wallach is at Only a Gary. I'm Karen Given on Twitter at KL Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening.